This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the 13th Sunday after Trinity. This is from the John Nicholas Linker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is from Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 23. And turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I say unto you that many prophets and kings desired to see the things which you see, and saw them not, and to hear the things which ye hear, and heard them not. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and made trial of him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus made answer and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who both stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance a certain priest was going down that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in like manner a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion and came to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring on them oil and wine. And he set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow he took out two shillings, and gave them to the host, and said, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, I, when I come back again, will repay thee. Which of these three thinkest thou provest neighbor unto him that fell among the robbers? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Thus far our text. In the first place, the evangelist relates how Christ our Lord led his disciples aside and being alone with them, rejoiced in his spirit and earnestly and directly said to them, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, for I say unto you that many prophets and kings desired to see the things that ye see, and saw them not, and to hear the things which ye hear and heard them not. This hearing and seeing must be understood simply and plainly as external seeing and hearing, namely that they saw Christ in his office, heard his preaching, and witnessed the miracles he performed among the Jews. The Jews also beheld these things with their natural eyes, and some of them indeed experienced them, in part, in their hearts. But in fact they did not recognize him as the Christ, like the apostles did. And like Peter, who representing all the others, confessed and said in Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, in spirit, many prophets and kings saw Christ as Christ himself says to the Jews concerning Abraham in John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews thought he spoke of natural seeing, but Christ spoke of spiritual seeing, as all pious Christian hearts saw him before he was born and still daily see him. Therefore the Lord here says to his disciples who saw both with their natural and their spiritual eyes, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. 
as though he would say, This is a blessed time, an acceptable year, a special season of grace. That which is now at hand is so precious that the eyes which see it are truly called blessed. Now when the Lord said this and was rejoicing in spirit, one presents himself, a lawyer, who, acting as though he also amounted to something, tempted the Lord and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer was perhaps a wise man and well acquainted with the scriptures, as his answer also suggests. Yet here he becomes a fool and must first begin to learn from the Lord when he is put to shame and disgrace. For Christ teaches him a good lesson and with one word takes out of him all his self-conceit. For he was in the delusion that he had kept the law wholly and perfectly and was therefore something extra above others, which undoubtedly he was and imagined because he was so pious and learned that he was, of course, worthy to talk with the Lord. But what now does the Lord do to ensnare him in a masterly manner? He does this. He permits him to judge himself. For the evangelist proceeds thus, And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Christ shows him that he has yet done nothing, when he allowed himself to think that he had done everything. He asks what he should do. I contend that he has enough to do now, if he only is able to do great things. When we examine the laws of Moses, we find that they all treat of love. For the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, I cannot explain or interpret otherwise than, Thou shalt love God alone. Thus Moses himself interprets it in Deuteronomy 6, where he says, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah, and thou shalt love Jehovah thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. From this passage, the lawyer has taken his answer. But the Jews understood this law to mean no more than that they should not set up idols and images to worship, and when they could say and confess with their lips that they have only one God and honor no other gods, they think they have kept this commandment. Thus this lawyer also understood it, but it was a false, erroneous knowledge of the law. Now we must have high regard for the law. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou, thou, it says, thou, and everything thou art. And especially does it mean the heart, the soul, and all thy powers. It does not speak of the tongue or the hands or the knees, but it speaks of the whole body and of all thou hast and art. If I am to have no other God, then I must surely possess the only true God with my heart. That is, I must in my heart be affectionate to him, evermore cleave to him, depend upon him, trust him, have my desire, joy, and love in him, and always think of him. And when one speaks or laughs and is not in earnest, and does not mean it from his heart, we say, You laugh and your heart is not in it. The heart is quite a different thing than the lips. Therefore, in the scriptures, the heart signifies the great and ardent love we should have for God. Those who serve God only with their lips, with their hands, or with their knees are hypocrites, and God cares nothing for them. For God does not want only a part. On the contrary, he wants the whole man. The Jews abstained outwardly from idolatry and served God only with their lips. But their hearts were far from him, full of mistrust and unbelief. Outwardly they appeared beautiful as though they meant it in all sincerity, but within they were full of idolatry. Therefore the Lord said unto them in Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
for ye tithe mint and anise and cumin, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even as ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but inwardly ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. They are really wicked people who become proud in external things, who desire to justify and make themselves pious by their works, as this lawyer does here. Behold what a proud character he is. He presents himself in his own name and thinks Christ will not rebuke him. Yea, he allows himself to think that the Lord will extol and praise his life in the presence of all the people, and does not think of learning anything from the Lord, but only seeks his own praise. The ignorant pretender would have gladly heard a psalm of praise from Jesus, the man whom the people esteemed, and at whom all men wondered. Thus all hypocrites do, who outwardly parade their excellent, great, and noble works. They well say that they do not seek honor and praise, but inwardly in their hearts they are full of ambition, and desire all the world to know of their holiness, and smile very nicely when they hear men speak of it. Yet the Lord does not serve this lawyer thus, but puts him to shame. This Christ is an unfriendly, ungracious man. He tells the people the truth, and well deserves that they should hate him. The pious, holy lawyer still does his utmost, and knows nothing but how to harvest great honors and obtain high renown for his precious life. He thinks he has perfectly fulfilled this commandment, and hopes for a favorable answer, that the Lord would say, Dear sir, you have done it all. But Christ goes to work and first tells him, Do this. That is to say, You are a rogue in the hide. You have not done this during your whole life. Yea, you have not kept a single letter of the law. And he thus shows him his wickedness. The poor fellow thinks he should sit in the first seat, that he is really pure and beautiful, and by rights should sit among the angels rather than here among the people. What a wonderful Christ is this! The people regard this lawyer as pious and holy, but Christ says he shall first go and begin to fulfill the law. Now these are the very fellows who most of all sin against the first commandment, and think no further than the words read. I must love God and think they have fulfilled the law, while it remains hovering on their tongues and over their hearts, but never enters. This, however, is not enough. It must reach much farther, namely, that I so love God that for his sake I can forsake all creatures and, should he require it, also body and life. Yea, that I should love him above all things. For God is a jealous God, and cannot suffer us to love anything above himself. But to love anything beneath himself, he of course allows. Just as a husband can easily allow his wife to love the maidservants, the house and house utensils, cattle and other things, but to love with the love she should have for him, he will not suffer her to love anyone besides himself. Yet he desires her to forsake all things for his sake, and so again the wife also requires the same from her husband. Thus God can also allow us to love his creatures. Yea, they are created for this purpose, and are good. The love of the creature should stand far, far below our love to God, and as he is the chief good, he will also be loved in the highest degree above all other good. If he will not allow me to love anything as much as I love him, much less will he allow me to love anything more than himself, though it be a creature of his own creation. Now I think you understand what it is to love God with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the mind. To love God with all the heart is to love him above all creatures, that is, 
although many creatures are quite lovely as they please me and I love them, nevertheless I am to despise and forsake all these for God's sake whenever God my Lord desires it. To love God with all the soul is to devote your entire bodily life to him, that you can say when the love of any creature or any persecution threatens to overpower you, all this I will give up before I will forsake my God. Let men cast me away, murder or drown me, let what God's will is happen to me. I will gladly lose all before I will forsake thee, O Lord. Unto thee will I cling more than to all thy creatures or to anything that is not thyself. I will risk all things together with what I have and am, that I may not forsake thee. The soul in the scriptures signifies the life of the body which acts through the five senses, eating, drinking, sleeping, waking, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and everything that the soul does through the body. To love God with all our strength is to devote all our members and whatever we may be able to do through our bodies to the love of God, and sacrifice all rather than do anything contrary to his will. To love God with all the mind is to take to nothing except that which is pleasing to God, by which is meant the self-conceit which man has that the same be directed to God and that all things be pleasing to him. Thus you see what the commandment requires. Thou shalt love God. Thou, thou, holy and fully, not thy hands, not thy lips, not thy knees, those who do this fulfill the commandment in the right sense. But there is not a man on earth who thus fulfills the law. Yea, we all do just the opposite. Thus this law here makes us all sinners, so that not the least letter of this commandment is fulfilled even by the most holy persons in the world. For no one clings so firmly to God with all the heart that he could forsake all the things for God's sake. We have, God be praised, become so competent that we can almost not suffer the least word, yea, we will not let go of a nickel for the sake of God. How is it possible for us to love God as long as his will displeases us? For if I love God, I love also his will. Now when God sends us sickness, poverty, shame, and disgrace, that is his will. What do we do under such circumstances? We thunder, scold, and growl, and bear it with great impatience. And this is the least part. For what would we do if we had to forsake body and life for God in Christ's sake? Then we would act quite differently. Yet in the meantime I act like this Pharisee and lawyer does. I lead a fine outward life, honor and serve God, fast, pray, and appear very pious and holy. But God does not want this. He wants us to accept his will with joy and love, and this we are too tardy in doing. Therefore what the Lord here says to this lawyer, he says to us all, namely that we have not yet fulfilled the law, and still he requires us to do it. On this account all men are guilty of death and are the devil's own property. All men are liars, it says in Psalm 116, vain and offensive. What they pretend does not avail before God. In our own affairs we are shrewd, how to scrape together money and goods, how to speak well of God before the people, and how to push ourselves ahead in a masterly manner. But what does God care for this? His will is that we should love him with all our hearts. This no man can do, and the conclusion is that we are all sinners, and especially those who walk in a beautiful outward show. Therefore it is safer that we go and confess that we all are sinners than that we have respect to our works and cling to our beautiful, glittering lives. The foregoing is the first part of our gospel lesson. It is a sermon on the law. The second part now follows, and it preaches the gospel, 
how and whence we are to receive power to fulfill the law. This the Good Samaritan will teach us. By means of this parable, the Lord concludes with the words, Go and do thou likewise, so that this lawyer did not only sin against God, but also against his neighbor. He not only failed to love God, but he did not love his neighbor and never did him a favor. By this the poor man falls into such a sweat that he is only deceived from head to foot. How could he be so mistaken, the highly learned and pious man? His mistake came in this way. He led a pharisaical, fictitious, and hypocritical life. He did not look down to his neighbor to help him with his life, but only sought thereby his own vainglory and honor before the eyes of the people, and with this he stared piously toward heaven. Now you have often heard that a Christian life consists in acting before my God in faith and with a pure heart, but toward my neighbor in a right living and good works, and not wait until my neighbor seeks a kindness of me and asks me for something, but approach and meet him with kindness and freely offer it to him. Let us now see what the parable itself teaches. This Samaritan, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown his love toward God and his neighbor. Toward God, in that he was obedient to him, came down from heaven and became a man, and thus fulfilled the will of his Father. Toward his neighbor, in that he immediately after his baptism began to preach, to do wonders, to heal the sick. And in short, he did no work that centered in himself alone, but all his acts centered in his neighbor. And this he did with all his powers, and thus he became our servant who could well have remained in heaven and been equal to God, like it says in Philippians 2. But all this he did because he knew that this pleased God and was his Father's will. When he entered upon that high mission to prove that he loved God with all his heart, he laid down his bodily life with all he had and said, Father, here you have all, my bodily life, my glory and honor, which I had among the people. All this I give as it is for thy sake, that the world may know how I love thee. My father let my wisdom perish, so that the world may look upon me as the most foolish. Let me be the most despised, who was heretofore praised by all the world. Now I am the worst murderer, who before was friendly, useful, and serviceable to the whole world. Dear father, all this I despise, only that I may not be disobedient to thee. This is the Samaritan who came uninvited and fulfilled the law with his whole heart. For only he fulfilled the law, and no one can deprive him of this honor. He alone merits it and well maintains it all alone. Now this would be no special comfort for us, but that he has compassion on the poor wounded man, takes him under his care, binds his wounds, takes him into the inn, and waits on him. This avails for us. The man who here lies half dead, wounded, and stripped of his clothing is Adam, and all mankind. The murderers are the devils who robbed and wounded us, and left us lying prostrate, half dead. We still struggle a little for life, but there lies horse and man. We cannot help ourselves to our feet, and if we were left thus lying, we would have to die by reason of our great anguish and lack of nourishment. Maggots would grow in our wounds, followed by great misery and distress. But the Samaritan, who has fulfilled the law and is perfectly healthy and sound, comes and does more than both priest and Levite. He binds up the sores of the wounded man, pours in oil and wine, lifts him on his own beast and brings him into the inn, takes good care of him, and when he departs he carefully commends him to the host, and besides leaves him a sufficient supply of money, while neither the priest nor the Levite could do one of those kind acts. The priests signify the dear sainted fathers before Moses, the Levite the priesthood of the Old Testament. 
All these, however, have accomplished nothing by their works, and have passed by on the other side like this priest and Levite. Therefore, if I had, for example, all the good works of Noah, Abraham, and all the dear fathers, they would still be of no benefit to me. They have indeed beheld the wounded man lying helpless and half dead, but they could not help it. They could make it only worse, but not better. These were the preachers of the law, and showed what the world was, namely full of deadly sins, and it lay there half dead and could not help itself, notwithstanding all its powers, reason, and free will. But Christ the true Samaritan takes the poor man to himself as his own, goes to him, and does not require the helpless one to come to him, for that here is no merit but pure grace and mercy, and he binds up his wounds, cares for him, and pours in oil and wine. This is the whole gospel from beginning to end. He pours in oil when grace is preached, as when one says, Behold, thou poor man, here is your unbelief, here is your condemnation, here you are wounded and sore. Wait, all this I will cure with the gospel. Behold, here cling firmly to this Samaritan, to Christ the Savior. He will help you, and nothing else in heaven or on earth will. You know very well that oil softens, thus also the sweet, loving preaching of the gospel gives me a soft, mild heart toward God and my neighbor, so that I risk my bodily life for the sake of Christ my Lord and his gospel, if God and necessity require it. But wine is sharp and signifies the holy cross that immediately follows. A Christian need not look for his cross, it is always on his back. For he thinks, as St. Paul says in Second Timothy 3, all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is the court color in this kingdom. Whoever is ashamed of the color does not belong to this king. Then the Samaritan lifts the wounded man on his beast. This beast is Christ the Lord himself. He carries us. We lay upon his shoulders, neck, and body. There is scarcely a more lovely picture in the entire gospel than where Christ the Lord compares himself to a shepherd in Luke 15 who carries the lost sheep on his shoulders back to the fold. He still carries continually his lost sheep thus at the present day. The stable or inn is Christianity here in this world, where we must remain for a short time. The host is the preacher of the word of God and of the gospel, who is to nurse and care for us. Now here we have the substance of the gospel. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of mercy and grace, in which there is nothing but a continual carrying of the lost. Christ carries our infirmities and sicknesses. He takes our sins upon himself and has patience when we fail. We still always lay about his neck, and yet he does not become weary of carrying us, which should be the greatest comfort for us when we are in conflict with sin. Ministers in this kingdom are to comfort the consciences, deal gently with them, and feed them with the gospel, carry the weak, heal the sick, and know how to divide the word rightly and administer the same to everyone according to his needs. This is the office of a true bishop and minister. A bishop or minister ought to resemble one who waits upon the sick, who treats them very gently, gives kind words, speaks very friendly to them, and exercises all diligence in their behalf. Thus a bishop or minister should also do, and remember that his bishopric or parish is nothing but a hospital and an infirmary where he has very many and various kinds of sick people for treatment. When Christ is thus preached, faith and life meet together and fulfill the commandment of love. Amen.
This has been a presentation of classical Lutheran preaching from the sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Linker Collection of 1905, reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.